0: Amen, amen. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. Whether you're watching online or you're in this room or we see you in the lobby, welcome. We know this is a unique Sunday. For Christians, this is our Super Bowl Sunday Easter. We're glad you're here, and we know that on a Sunday like this, we have lots of different types of people in the room. Some of you never go to church ever and that's okay, right? Some of you like, you're like unchurched and you're like, I don't, you know, I go to church for a funeral, I go to church for a wedding, but I don't really like being inside a church. So when you pulled up here and you go, oh, it's like a crate and barrel. I feel comfortable here, okay? (laughs) So we're glad you're here, okay? If you're you're, like not used to church and you're here, welcome. Some of you are the church. It's like, you had a bad experience with church. I don't know why, I don't know where, I don't know when. You, You did something bad or I don't know, someone did something bad to you or I don't know, you just got busy, it happens, it's okay. We're glad that you're back. Others of you, this is your first time in person since COVID. And we heard a lot of stories about that. It was, it was, hey, you know what, we're gonna watch online, but as we get to Easter, I'm not missing two Easter's in a row and I'm back. And so we are glad you're back. If you have to leave early, let me give you the main message of Easter. Because we're gonna talk about a lot of things. In fact, you can type to, turn to Matthew seven. It'll be on the screen too in a little bit. Matthew seven. So uh, here's what Easter's about. Three words, Jesus is alive, that's the message of Easter. It's not Jesus lived, lots of people lived, it's Jesus lives. And what you heard in Jacquez's video, and I love that video and I love that story, that's the story of every Christian, of every person who realized the truth about Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. Now this is, let me just take a minute on this, okay? There are the events of Easter, that would be Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and the empty tomb, the resurrection. And then there's the explanation of those events. And then there's the experience of all of that personally and privately in your own life. See, because think about the events of Christ being for a second. Like, is it a big deal? And I don't mean to be a reverend here, but is it a big deal that some Jewish guy lived 33 years in Israel and was a carpenter? It's like, doesn't affect my life. I mean, that would, be a, that would be the normal response to talking about this. If you're thinking, like, what's the big deal about a guy named Jesus who was, I mean, there's lots of rabbis, there was lots of teachers, there was lots of carpenters. Here's the big deal. The big deal is when you realize why Jesus lived. When you realize, wait a second, he was living a sinless life. He was living a perfect life. He was living a life of flawless obedience under the law of God. And he was doing that because I have failed. When you realize that all of a sudden you read the gospels differently, all of a sudden, you're incredibly grateful when you realize of all your failures and all of your sins. And then, and then let's be honest, what's the big deal about a guy dying on a cross? I mean, lots of people were crucified. It's a real easy, real convenient way to kill people. And the Romans perfected it. And they would often, I mean, they would just kill hundreds of people at once through crucifixion. It's not a big deal, historically speaking. Like some guy died on a cross 2000 years ago. I mean, I feel bad about that, but how does that affect my life? unless you realize Jesus Christ died instead of me. Jesus Christ died for me. The cross is about how Jesus is going to be my substitute, how Jesus died in my place, how Jesus paid the penalty and the punishment and the price and the payment for my sin. Then all of a sudden you're like, well, that's why we, I mean, it's kind of weird that we sing songs about blood. Right, I mean, that's, but we do that because we believe that actually what Jesus Christ did in his life and his death matters. And how about the empty tomb? It's like, I've done whole Easter messages on the empty tomb, okay? You can go back and listen to those, about the eyewitness accounts and that Jesus appeared to over 500 people and there's no such thing as group hallucinations. They don't happen, okay? So, so we know that the resurrection is true. We see the changed lives of the disciples. But you might go, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is Jesus actually says, so in some places, Jesus says, I'm gonna die and rise. In other places, Jesus says, God the Father will raise me from the dead. What, what, what the resurrection is about, it's about God raising Jesus Christ from the dead, saying, I approve, I affirm, I celebrate, I receive, and I rejoice in your death for sinners. It was good enough. Now death has been defeated. People can be forgiven and people can be freed. That's the message of Easter. And what you heard from Jacques is he's like, I got it. But before I got it, I didn't get it, right? That's how it works, right? And what he said is there was two ways that people run from God and there's two ways that we run from God. He says, some people run from God by being religious. And that means I keep God's commands in hopes to earn. I'm gonna be a good person. You know, and there's different versions of that, right? There's, I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna go to a community group. And then there's, I'm gonna reduce, reuse, recycle, ride my bike, shop at Whole Foods, eat non-GMO, all right, and that's a, that's a, you know, be the most tolerant person, tweet all the right hashtags. I mean, that's just another version. If you don't know that, that's just another version of moralism. And then there's rebellion, right? Where I love it. He says, "Hey, I was just like, I was going after what the world's going after. I was like going, I was lustful. I was going after all these different things." And, and I love that because one guy, he famously said, he said, "You know what?" He said, "Every person searching for God, they don't know it." He said, "And the man who knocks on the brothel's door is actually looking for God." He doesn't know it, wow. And so what we're looking at, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter seven, verse 13, we're looking at the most famous, we're actually looking at the final words of the most famous sermon by the most famous person in all of human history. And one of the things that you'll have to wrestle with wherever you are, wherever we are, is you have to wrestle with why is Jesus the most famous person in human history? I mean, we're talking about a guy who died innocently at a young age. He was poor, he was not from a prestigious family, he did not go to a good college, right? He did not run for political office. He did not write a book. He never traveled more than 100 miles. And yet no one has had more books written about him, more songs sung to him, more paintings drawn of him than Jesus Christ. And what you're gonna see today is Jesus Christ is the most self-centered, self-directed, self-focused teacher in the whole world. He's always saying, follow me, come to me, believe in me, worship me. All other religious teachers say, hey, hey, the truth's out there. And he said, no, the truth's right here. He called people to himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, which is the final words of the most famous sermon by the most famous person. If you'll look at me, here's what it says. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gates. So he's going to say, hey, there's this, this gate. It's really narrow. I want you to enter by it. Look what he does. It doesn't say stare at the gate. Think about the gate. Consider the gate. Debate the gate. <laughs> He it, says, it says, enter the gate. And then he says this, enter the narrow gate. It's like, oh, Jesus, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be narrow-minded. Why is it narrow, right? I wanna be broad. He says, well, enter the narrow gate. For There's another gate, for the, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, but the problem is it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. So if you're on a road and every, with a lot of people, okay, you're probably going in the wrong direction. If you're doing everything that culture's doing, you're probably on the wrong road. then he says this, let me say it again. He says, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Well, at least Jesus is honest. We'll appreciate that. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. What Jesus is doing today is he's calling us to a decision, a direction and a destination. That's a good way to think of it. A decision is which gate, right? And a direction is which path or which road. And and a destination is, well, where's it going to lead? And we don't like this, right? We don't like having to make decisions. Americans, and especially millennials and Gen Xers and the I generation, like we don't like making decisions because it means we have to say no to something. That's not fun, right? That's why, why are people delaying marriage? Because they don't wanna say no to everybody else to say yes to one person. Why aren't people buying homes? Because they don't wanna say no to living everywhere else to say yes to live in one place, right? Why aren't people, why are people getting jobs and not careers? because they don't want to say no to everything else to say yes to one path, to get one kind of education, right? So we don't like decisions. But here's the interesting thing. We make 2,000 decisions an hour. That's what they say, 2,000 decisions an hour. Now they're like really, really little decisions, right? Like you're constantly making the decision, are you going to listen to, to me or not? And you came in here, where are you going to sit? And then you'll leave, and where are you going to go after eating? And, and you make about 2,000 micro decisions an hour. And this is why you have what's called decision fatigue, Right? This happened during COVID. It's like, you know, eh, eh, oh, wait, we're all, all working at home. All the kids are at home. We don't have enough toilet paper. I mean, it's just a lot of decisions that you're trying to make all at once, okay? I was talking to my, i got a nine-year-old daughter. And I was telling her about this. She always asks me what I'm preaching on. I said, well, I'm talking about making decisions. And I'm talking about this thing. Have you ever heard of decision fatigue? And she says, well, I know what decision means. And we talked about that. And I said, do you know what fatigue means? And she said, no. I said, it means it makes you really tired. She goes, mom has decision fatigue a lot, doesn't she? <laughs> I said, yes, because of you. No, <laughs> of, Because of three kids that ask questions all the time. Um, and then the interesting thing is, it, uh, so compared to 1986, we are processing, they, they, they estimate, it's hard, how, I don't know how they figure all this out, that we are now processing five times the information a day that we were processing in 1986. And so that's part of why we're so anxious and depressed. It's like, I can't handle knowing every bad thing that happened to every one of my Facebook friends. I I can't handle comparing my unfiltered life to everybody else's filtered life. I can't handle 24-7 news and only knowing the bad things that are happening all over the world. I can't handle it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Though we make about 2,000 decisions an hour, okay, and though we have decision fatigue, and though we are trying to process an enormous amount of complex information, we actually only make about 10 to 15 major decisions in our life, they say. And if you can think about it, I'm going to tell you what they are in a second, but, you know, depending on how long you live and how many kids you have and, you know, how much illness and injury affects your family, I mean, you'll have about somewhere between 10 or 15 decisions. And I looked at different studies, and one of the studies said, guess what the number one major decision people are wrestling with right now in their lives? Should I stay married? Some of you are like, I thought this was going to be an encouraging Easter sermon. (laughs) Should I stay married? Whether to get divorced or not, okay? Number two biggest decision people are wrestling with nowadays. Should we have a child? Should we have another child? Should we are we done having children? Should we adopt? Should we not adopt? The question of children. Third is marriage again. Like should I get married? Fourth is some version of should we move? Should we buy a house? Do we need to live in a different location than we live in? Number 5 is Does something major need to change with education or career in my life? And then number six is what should we do with illness and injury when it comes into our family? Aging parents, disabled child, an accident, cancer. And everybody's gotta make the decisions, what are we going to do? Now, why are those the big decisions? If you think about it for a moment, you know why they're the big decisions. They're the big decisions because they affect all of life. That's why all of them are like intensely relational for the most part, it's like, you know, marriage and family. It's like, we know that because if you get married, it's the merging of two lives and it's, it's a complex relationship. It's a friendship, it's a sexual relationship, it's an emotional relationship, it's a financial relationship, it's a lifelong relationship, it's like, no wonder. It's like, it's a big decision because it affects everything. It's like, why is that, it's like, you know, is having a kid a big decision? Ask somebody who's had a kid. <laughs> the answer is very big decision. Okay, because it's like all of a sudden, right? It's like, well, who's came, are we both working? Who's coming home? You know, how are we going to afford all of this? Do we need a bigger house? Do we need a different car? For the rest of my life, I'm only as happy as my most unhappy child. <laughs> right? So this is, what we, this is what we invite into our lives. And so now it's interesting because Jesus is going to say there's a massive decision that you have to make, but it's not been on any of the studies and any of the surveys. Every survey I looked at it said, okay, who will you wed? Where will you work? None of the surveys said, who will you worship? It's not in any of the surveys. It's not in any of the studies. It's not in any of the statistics. But it is the biggest decision because it affects you in this life and in the life to come. Because it's just not at the financial or the emotional or the social or the relational, but it's at the soul level. And so Jesus says, hey, look, there's, and he makes things really black and white, which we don't really like. We like things to be gray and fuzzy. So we have an excuse for why we, you know, don't do what we need to do. And Jesus is like, actually, let me make it really, really straight for you. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate, yeah. right? The, the Bible is binary, right? We don't like that. There's male, there's female. There's heaven, there's hell. There's angel, there's demon. There's creator, there's creation. There's judgment, there's mercy. That's it. And so he says, okay, there's these two options and you have to decide which of the two options. And you're like, Jesus, hold on, I have Netflix. There's never just two options. Right? Have you ever had that experience where you're on Netflix and you're with your wife or your husband, and you're like, well, let's just watch something, right? I mean, you choose, I don't know you choose, you, know, you choose. And, and, and an hour and a half later, you're like we're going to bed, there's nothing, we, we don't know what to do. <laughs> or think about toothpaste, okay? So 100 years ago, if you walked into the toothpaste, well, if you walked into the store and there was a, a toothpaste aisle, there wasn't even a toothpaste aisle, there was a tube of toothpaste, okay? And it's like, it was one size, it was one brand, it was one color, it did one thing, it was one flavor. Have you seen the modern toothpaste aisle? most men in here have never seen this aisle, okay? (laughs) There are colors and there are brands and there are flavors and there are travel sizes and they do different things. It's overwhelming. And I say all that to say, when you have that much choice, it's hard to go, there's only two gates. And even even maybe more offensive, there's only one right gate. There's only two roads and more offensive, there's, there's only one right way. There's two crowds, the few and the many, and there's only one right group. And there's two destinations, but there's only one right one. What does he mean by narrow, right? We don't want to be, I mean, who wants to be called narrow, right? You don't want to be, it gets so offensive today to be called narrow-minded. But I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis said, you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out. (laughs) Right? He's so smart, right? C.S. Lewis said an open mind is like an open mouth. You open it to close it. You open it to close it. And so you you may open your mind, you may learn something, you may, okay, but we don't like it. Now, what does he mean by it's narrow? It means means it's hard to see and easy to miss, right? I've never gotten a sponsored ad for Facebook about entering the narrow gate. It's a very hard thing to advertise. Jesus is honest about it, but it's not easy to advertise. And now it's interesting because if you read in other places, Jesus actually goes as far as other places to say, I am the gate or I am the door. Why it's so narrow is it's as narrow as the person and the work of Jesus Christ, It's as narrow as his life, as his death, and as his resurrection. And what's interesting is this makes Christianity, and this is offensive to people, but but it's helpful to know. It makes Christianity the most exclusive and inclusive religion simultaneously because he says the gate is narrow but open to anyone who wants to come in. So in other words, it's like, listen, there's only one way to be saved. It's It's as small of a door to be saved as the person and work the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you need to repent and believe. You need to submit and surrender. You need to transfer trust to Jesus Christ. It's that narrow. There's no other way. It's like being in a burning building, right? And there's only one door and you see the door and you don't go, one door? <laughs> I wish there were seven doors. This building's burning down. It's like, no, I thank God that there's one door. I saw it and I walked through it. So, he says, enter the door, but it's, it's, it's as inclusive that anybody can enter. And that's really important because, you know, sometimes people feel like they can't enter because something happened to them. That's more common than you would think. You know, people think something like, well, my uncle molested me. Or you don't know what happened to me when I was in college. Or sometimes people think, you don't know what I've done. I mean, I travel a lot. I was single for a long time right? And they think, well, you don't know what I've done. And because of what I've done, I can't enter the narrow gate. But it it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, man, woman. The Bible says anybody can enter. And this is what makes Christianity unique. This is why reading the text carefully is important. The gate comes before the road. In every other religion, the road comes first. It's like, well, you know, get on this road, right? It's the five things you have to do in Islam and the seven things you have to do in Buddhism and the 14 things you have to do in Mormonism. And there's all this, I have to get on the road and I have to be a good person, in, right? Cuz what's all the images of heaven? Not biblical images, the biblical but the images of heaven are always pearly gates. That's not a biblical image. There's per, there, no no, the gates here. We enter the gate now. We believe now. And then we're in and actually Jesus Christ and the church walk with us on a very hard road, but it's headed toward life together. Now, the question that you might wanna ask if you're asking this, if you're thinking about this correctly is, well, how do I know if I'm on the right road, right? Well, you, you, one, one way you can know is by looking who's walking around with you, right? But he gives us some other images. If you look with me at verse 21, he gives us an image. He says this, because he, he, he's, he's closing his sermon and wanting to be super clear. Look what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, wait a second, Jesus, hold on. I thought everybody went to heaven. I thought if you'd go to every funeral today, I thought all that you have to do is die. If you die, you go to heaven, right? Isn't that, it doesn't matter if you were bad. It doesn't matter what you believed. It doesn't matter how you behaved, right? You just die. And then the priest or the pastor gets up and says, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. And we all believe that. Well, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Hold on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now that's interesting because Lord, Lord is the shortest confession of faith in the Bible. And and, and to say something twice is to emphasize it or to be sincere. And you'll learn that being sincere isn't enough. You need to be saved. Being nice isn't enough. You need to be made new. And he says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, verse 22. On that day, and this is interesting, Jesus is looking to a future day He's assuming and anticipating his resurrection. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And what I'm about to read to you, by the way, is the most shocking and surprising verse many consider in the New Testament. It's shocking and it's surprising. Let me read it to you. On that day, many, not just some, not like one person, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. It's not about you saying you know God, it's about God saying he knows you, right? It's like how do you get into the White House? Do you go and say, I know the president? No, the only way you get into the White House is if the president says he knows you. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, this is considered not only the most shocking and surprising verse in the New Testament, many also consider it the saddest. And it's the saddest because it is, we, we, though we, I don't write the mail, i just deliver it, but we, but we believe in a literal heaven and hell. We believe people actually go there. We believe in eternal, conscious, irreversible torment. That's a place called hell, and it really exists, and so does heaven. And what's so sad here is Jesus is saying there's people who think they're going to heaven And they think they're about to go into heaven and they realize they're actually going to hell. And it's considered the saddest verse in the Bible or especially in the New Testament because it's one thing when a Muslim goes to hell and it's very sad. And it's one thing when a Jewish person goes to hell. And it's one thing when an atheist or an agnostic goes to hell but when somebody who had so much access to the spirit of God and to the people of God and to the word of God into the gospel of God when somebody has that much access, but they don't welcome it, they don't embrace it, they don't live it. It's the tragedy. It's what some call the sin of Judas, right? One of Jesus' own 12 disciples was close. Judas was the first executive pastor. That's what he was. He was over the finances. Of the first church, the twelve disciples and when they're sitting around the table and he goes one of you are going to betray me none of, none, they don't all go it's Judas <laughs> right that's what, it's definitely Judas um, no you get you let the guy handle the money who everyone trusts I mean and so they, they all go is it me is it me is it me the sin of Judas now a couple things that even make it more scary is a reminder that words are not enough now grateful for words the Bible says that we must we must use words we must confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord but what they didn't do is they didn't believe in their hearts believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead words are hard because we and again you gotta understand this I'm I'm trying to think about this because I didn't grow up in a Christian home so I I don't I don't have the language like some of you do who who grew up in that Christian home like I, I became a Christian at 16 and it's like Kyle was not a Christian for sure and, and then Kyle was a Christian for sure. And we saw his life change. But, but so I never knew, like I had, to, I had my own problems. I had to learn, later learn the Zacchaeus song and the Veggie Tales movies and the DC talk and all, you know, I had to learn all that later. Okay. That came later for me. But, but some of you, some of you, you know, that you know how to say things like I'm struggling with sin, which means you're indulging in sin. Right. Some of you know how to say, I'm praying about this, which means you're not praying about this. Right? Some of you know how to pray over things. And we can't tell, right? We'll get to this in a moment. We can't tell. Sometimes we can. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us insights, but well, sometimes we can't tell. It's like, you're good at praying. You have, you know, your dad was, uh, is a strong Christian. And so you have all these insights into scripture that make you look really smart and really spiritually mature. And then he says something even scarier, which is why it really is the most shocking. He says, they prophesied, they, ca- they cast out demons. They did mighty works. Here's what he's saying. They had lots of religious activity and lots of spiritual experiences. It's like, wow. It's like, well, that's an important message for, so- for some of us in Winston-Salem with 516 church buildings. I mean, how many people? I can't tell you how many people we have baptized that have come to faith in Christ in our church that tell some story about how they were religiously lost for a long time. I mean, because everybody's cried at camp one time right? Everybody had that conference where they had the, the quiver in their liver, you know what I mean? Right? Where they felt bad and they dimmed the lights and they made it. And you walked an aisle and you raised a hand and you wrote a card and you felt really guilty about something that you looked at. And you talked to someone for one night and you think, wow, I'm a Christian. And so the, he's saying there's, there's a danger in having religious activity, Trading is not saying I really have affections for Christ, but I don't have affections for Christ, but I do attend things. I'm not transformed internally from the inside out, but I know how to talk about everything. And so this is, this is the, the, the concern about religiously lost people. And we're always trying to make it very difficult to go from two cities church to hell. And, and one of the things, you know, it's interesting, I had a guy, I'll never forget this. I had a guy, uh, he called our office, probably two years ago. And he's in his 70s, and, he, and I guess he called our office, and he said, can I talk to Pastor Kyle? And I knew who he was, and I thought, well, this will be an interesting conversation. I don't know him real well, and so I called him. And he's in his 70s, and he said, Kyle, he said, can we have lunch? I think I'm religiously lost. And I was like, wow, you could be 70. I mean, I, I teach this, and I was thinking, you could be 70 and be religiously lost? And we went to lunch, and I couldn't believe it. And we talked about what it was like for 50 years to be in church, but not in Christ. To be baptized, but not to be born again. To be sincere, but not saved. To be nice, but not new. To have a, what the Bible calls a form of godliness, but no power. So Jesus gives us one other thing, he says. He wants to give us one more image with all this. He's giving us these incredible images. If you look at me in verse 24, here's what it says next. He says, everyone who hears, everyone then who hears, and he's moving from speaking, Lord, Lord, to hearing, okay? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when you see house in this passage, think what we can see. That's what a house is, right? When you drive down a neighborhood, the house is what you can, can see. You can't see what they built that house on, okay? So he says, verse 25, and the rain fell, and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So there's a house and it was built on a rock and it withstands a storm. Very simple. Okay, I get it. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine, so there's two, so two people who are listening, and does not do them, the difference is what they do with it, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And you go, well, why would you build your house on the sand? There's three reasons that someone builds their house on sand. It's easier. It's cheaper. You don't think there will be any storms. That's why you do it. Well, it's easy. It's cheap. And I'll just hope nothing bad happens. And then I can have a house with half the price everybody else does because all the foundation works, all the real expensive work to do. So then he says this, verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So he's talking about what we believe at the bottom. That would be a way to think about it. What do you believe at the bottom or in the basement? What is your faith foundation? That's what he's dealing with, with the rock and the sand. And sometimes people go, do other people have faith? I thought just Christians had faith. No, everybody has faith. I love what Frank Turk, who Turk, wrote, he wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it's an interesting book because what he says in there is he shows how much, this is one just example. He says, he shows throughout the book how much faith it takes to be an atheist he says, I just can't believe that the impersonal could create the personal. I don't have enough faith to believe that. He says, and I I just can't believe that chaos and disorder would create everything we see in such an orderly world. And I just, I I, I don't have enough faith to believe that nobody times nothing equals everything. Now, many of us don't have, we're not thinking at that level of our faith foundation. We have other more basic beliefs at the bottom. And this is interesting. What he's saying is you only discover what you believe when the storms come. Like, and I don't mean this in any offensive way, but there's a good chance, unless you've had a lot of suffering in your life, you actually don't know what you believe. Right, I mean, how could you? Why do we need anthropology? The discipline, not the store. Um, You know, (laughs) um, (laughs) why do we need anthropology and sociology and psychology? Why do you need therapy and counseling? Well, the answer is because it's not obvious what you believe. It's not obvious to you at all. We constantly need other people helping us to understand what do we believe. What he's saying is, you discover it in the storm. Now here's the principle: you discover what you believe in a storm, but you build your foundation during calm times. So you discover your foundation in the storm, but you build it in calm seasons. What are your teenage years, high schoolers and middle schoolers and college students, what are your teenage years about? Building the right foundation before illness and injury, sickness and suffering, marriage and children, old age come to you, that's what you do. What are most people doing in their teenage years? Trying to find and download free porn on the internet. Wasting their time playing video games practicing for divorce through the hookup, shackup, breakup culture. And see, what happens is what you wanna, a good marriage is two people who both said, we've spent the last 25 years building our foundation. So we're ready if some, when tragedy, not if, when tragedy and trial and trouble comes to us, we're ready. When one of us loses our job, we're ready. A, a difficult marriage, a terrible marriage in many ways, is one in which one or both of the spouses does not have a strong foundation, Right? What, what, is a, what is a midlife crisis? I built on the wrong foundation and a storm came and I wasn't ready for it. So he says, what happens is you build your foundation in times of calm, you discover it in the storm. Now here's two foundational beliefs that most Americans believe. The first foundational belief is I'm a good person. And normally what will happen in your life is temptation will eventually show you that you're not a good person. I've seen this again and again and again. I had a guy years ago. He came to me and he said, Pastor Kyle, I I realized, part of his testimony, he said, I came to Christ. I know I mentioned pornography a couple times here, but this was his story. He said, I came to Christ because of how ensconced and absolutely addicted to pornography I got. He said, I was raised in a Christian home. And I, I knew the verses on we're all sinners. He said, but when I was living a double life, when I was spending hours searching for pornography... When I felt completely trapped in it and I started lying to everyone about it, I started to realize how evil of a person I was. That's when I realized I needed Christ, right? I mean, I've told you this before, most PTSD is not you seeing somebody else do something to you. That's some of PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Most PTSD is I saw myself do something in Vegas or when I was traveling or in Vietnam or in the military or when I was drunk one night, I saw myself do something that I didn't know I could do and now I don't know how to deal with me. So temptation often is a storm that shows you that your foundation is, you're not a good person, right? Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And that there's only one good person and his name is Jesus Christ. And he died for us and he lived for us and he rose for us. The second belief that a lot of people have is the purpose of life is that I would be happy. That's an, you don't realize that until something bad happens to you. And you're like, "Well, uh, no, I'm too young to get cancer." Like I, people like me don't struggle with infertility. I, I thought I thought our marriage was going to be like The Notebook. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, and, and you start to go, "Okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a different purpose and point of, of life," and you start asking some questions. You know, Tim Keller, who I've talked about often, um, he recently got pancreatic cancer. And in a new book um, on, on the resurrection and on suffering, he has this interesting part in it where he talks about the belief system that's very popular among millennials in iGens, which is I die and disappear. If you don't know that, that would be the most common belief. Like, and it goes something like this. Hey, you know, do you remember when you didn't exist before you were born? No. Was it painful? No. Were you sad? No. Okay, well, that's going to happen again to you but it's okay, don't worry about it. Because you used to not exist and then you won't exist again. That's a bottom belief. And Tim Keller talks about that because it's very, that's a very, 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 very popular belief in Manhattan. It's a very, very popular belief among young people. And it's an easy belief when you're healthy and death seems a long time away. And what Tim Keller says is I have been at the bedside of so many dying people who have that belief, not helpful at all at death so I never see anybody again. Everything I did, all these feelings of purpose and meaning and relationship and longing, they're all gone. And he said, these these beliefs that we have, when they're tested by the ultimate storm, death, they don't last, they're shown to be sand. And so Matthew ends with how the people respond to Jesus' teaching. If you'll look with me at Matthew chapter seven, verse 28. This is Matthew's note on how they responded. And when Jesus finished, so we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, a series we've been in for three months. It was one long sermon for Jesus. It says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. And and we don't wanna be less than astonished, we just wanna be more than astonished at what Jesus said. Astonished at his teaching. See, so many people are astonished at, oh, he's such a great teacher. He had such an insight into the human soul. Uh, He he had so much compassion. He's such a great model. He was such an incredible storyteller. But Matthew makes a little note here in verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had, and this is the main issue on Easter, and and really in any day in our lives. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At the end of the day, the Easter in Christianity is about having to deal with the authority of Christ, right? Everybody has to decide in their life. You've got to decide, I've got to decide what's going to be the Supreme Court in our lives, right? We're not saying that Jesus is the only authority. He's the ultimate authority. He's the Supreme Court, right? We're Parents are authorities and bosses are authorities and the government's in authority. But we have to decide what is going to be the ultimate authority in our lives. Most people say, you know what the ultimate authority is gonna be? Me, myself, and my three, my three pound brain. My 30 years of experience and my three-pound brain, that's going to be the authority of my life. Others say it's going to be society and culture. But they're very miserable because, right? They, what is, what's the saying? If you marry the spirit of the age, you're a widow in the next. And so they, they constantly are watching. What are the celebrities saying? What are the political candidates running on? What's, what's, what, what's the right side of history now? Some people say, you know what? Science is going to be the highest story. We're not anti-science. We believe in science. But science can't answer the questions your four-year-old is going to ask you about the whys of life and the values of life. What Jesus Christ has done is he comes into the world and he says, I'm going to use my authority for good and not for bad. We're having an interesting conversation in our nation right now about the place of authority and how to use it. But what Jesus Christ does, is he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to use my authority for your good. I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to raise it back up. Easter is a reminder that Jesus died, but you need to decide. It's a reminder that Jesus rose, but each of us needs to individually respond. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you that you love us so much, that you call us to so much. Lord, in a world of complete confusion, I thank you for so much clarity in your word. I just wanna give anyone in here right now or watching online, I wanna give anybody that, who wants to a chance to respond. Some of you, you know exactly where you've been. You've been staring and you have been looking at the gate. Some of you actually, you're on the wide path and in this sermon, you know you've been told, turn around, turn around. You've been going in the wrong direction. That's what repentance is. Repentance is, I was building the wrong foundation, now I'm building the right one. I was on the wrong road, now I'm on the right one. I was saying something with my lips and not with my life. If you would be in here right now and you'd say, I've never given my life to Jesus Christ, really. I've never given him my sin and myself. I've never given him my best and my worst. I've never really surrendered and submitted. And if you wanna do that right now, I wanna give you an opportunity. If you wanna publicly identify with Jesus Christ right now and say, you are going to be the highest authority in my life, I'm gonna submit and surrender to you. If you've never done that and you wanna do that right now, would you raise your hand? Just high, raise your hand up. If you would say, I wanna submit my life to Jesus Christ, thank you, yes, I see those hands, yes, that's right, yes. For the rest of us, for all of us, we've gotta ask the question, COVID has been a tough 14, 15 months on our nation, on our city, it has been a storm that has revealed the foundations in so many people's lives and it is time for us to go with the word of God, with the spirit of God, with the grace of God, with the gospel of God and to come to people and to tell them about the hope that we have. There's no better time than today to enter the gate. There's no better time than today to to line up our life with our lips. There's no better time than today to start building the right foundation. Jesus, we thank you that scripture says no foundation can be laid except that which is already laid, Jesus Christ. That is what we stand on today. That is what we stand on when we will one day look at you and say, Lord, Lord, we ask this in your name, amen.